Well, we are at the, at the end of this little journey. We began a series a few weeks back called Believe and Have Life. And um, if you missed uh, any of the few past uh, previous weeks, you can go online. Uh, we have Spotify, uh, podcasts. You can go on the app, the website, and you could download and watch or listen to the sermon. I'm also going to print the notes because it's been a lot of material over these past uh, however many weeks. And so I'll have that printed up, and probably next week um, that'll be available for those of you who asked. And so this morning we're going to end the series, and then next week Sam's going to preach. And then the following week um, I'm going to go back and I'm going to revisit um, what we talked about faith uh, meaning allegiance to, right? The biblical idea of faith and belief is allegiance to. And two words that always turn up in Scripture relative to that are turn and repent. So belief involves turning and repenting. And so we're going to talk about that in a couple weeks from now. But believe and have life. John 20, 31, he's talking about his reason for writing. And he says, these things were written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. That by believing you may have life in his name. That it's not just information, but it's information that leads to transformation as we live together out the application, right? And so believe and have life. Be part of God's community. Participate in the kingdom now. So again, we said faith means allegiance to. It involves belief and surrender and trust. It is not static. It is dynamic. It is living. It's relational. Just like in any other relationship, you don't exercise certain things once and be done with it, but you continue in the relationship. You would continue to increase intimacy, to communicate, to increase trust. And so our relationship with God is just that. It is not accepting simply a a set of facts, but it is in our heart recognizing who Jesus is, living out our faith in every aspect of our lives. We said Matthew 4.17, it says, From that time on, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's in your midst. It's within you. The kingdom of heaven has come now. And so we said Jesus calls us to come to him for rest. That that's, a, that's the first step to recognize our need of him, to simply come for, to him and get that rest for our soul. And we said the second invitation is to follow. It's an invitation to discipleship, to be part of the community of faith. And the third invitation is to live in the realm of God. Abide in me and I in you. Live in the realm of God. And so last week we looked at Paul and his life, and we looked at the life of the rich young ruler. And we contrasted those two things. Paul could have been the rich young ruler. Paul was the rich young ruler. Paul had the pedigree. Paul had the experience. He had the accomplishments. The only difference between Paul and the rich young ruler is Paul recognized the call of God on his life. And so, you know, as we conclude this series, the hope is not that you are emotionally moved somehow. The hope is that the Word of God, the power of the Word of God, the power of the Spirit of God has invaded your life and has invaded your life in a way that causes you to reflect and go deeper. That's why we come here week after week. 
See, only one of those two, Paul and the rich young ruler, only one of those two lived the left, rest of his life with regret. Scripture tells us the rich young ruler, he walked away in great distress, grieving. And Paul said in Philippians 3, 7, but whatever gain I had, anything good that I did, anything good that I had, I consider loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And so he said the story of the rich young ruler is not just a story about giving away money. It's a story about removing idols. And, and the best example, and we used it, you know, if you weren't here, but we used it a few times, is that the idea of a monkey trap, Right? That a monkey trap is simply a cage with a hole that a monkey can fit his hand through and there's a banana in the cage and he grabs the banana and once he grabs the banana, he can't get his hand out. But all he's got to do is let go. All he has to do is let go of the banana and he'll be free. But he's holding on to the thing that thinks brings him freedom, that he thinks brings him freedom and it leads to his death. He just walks up and grabs him. See, the rich young ruler is a story about misunderstanding who Jesus is. About misunderstanding why he came. About profoundly misunderstanding what he offered. We read about this promise revealed to John. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And we said that the entire theme of the Old and New Testament, I will be their God and they will be my people. He said, God's dwelling place, God abides now with them. And he will be their God, and they will be his people. And he will wipe away every tear from their eye. And there'll be no more crying, and no more mourning, no more death. The old things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne says, Behold, I make all things new. See, the call isn't to just be a better version of ourselves. The call is to allow Christ to be manifest in our lives. If anyone is in Christ, the Bible says, they're a new creation entirely. The old is gone and the new has come. And so we're called to walk in this newness. And so the story of the rich young ruler is a story about idolatry. And Jesus doesn't just say, hey, listen, you know, you, you have this kind of this negative relationship with money, so what we're going to do is we're going to take a piece of it, and, and Jesus goes, give it all up and follow me. And the interesting thing is that, of course, in that invitation, one would gain everything and lose nothing at all. So it has to do with what, where our allegiance lies. What are our views of the world around us? How do we determine what's important? Money's not bad. Wealth isn't bad. Resources aren't bad. They're good. And everybody says, oh, I don't, I don't care about that. I care about that. I want to have as much resources, as much affluence and influence as God will give me to leverage for his kingdom. 
It's the priority of those things in our lives. The end result of, of hard work and good business sense is often wealth, but you don't pursue the wealth. It is what, what, are you, what are you going after? What are you pursuing? What are you giving your life to? He who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. How often we love the old. There's an interesting in scripture before Jesus is about to heal the man. He says, do you want to be well? Do you want to walk in a different way? In a way that's unknown to you? Or do you, do you want to stay where you are? Stay in your past? And we say, well, of course we want to be new. Of course we want to change. But do we really? Because that's what it is, change. The Christian life is one of change. John 3.30, more him, less me. That is it. But what motivates that change, the source of that change, is what the entire scriptures get at. God wants our obedience, but only if he has our heart. What God is after, every, everybody here in this room, he wants your heart. That's what he wants. You know, those lyrics, he sent his son to die for us, to make a wretch his treasure. I mean, how powerful. To make a wretch his treasure. And, I, and, and, I, and I've said this before, but what resonates about the story of the rich young ruler is it says Jesus looked at him and had a great love for him. And I just think not only in my own life, how many times I walked away from Jesus because he asked me to give up something I wasn't ready to give up. But every time I was sad. And then I think of it from like a parent. And I think of Jesus looking at him and being like, you just don't know any better. If you only knew, if you only understand what I'm offering you, you wouldn't walk away. And it broke his heart. Because what got in the way of that man giving his heart to Jesus was his money, and it doesn't have to be. That could be anything. What's your idol? What's my idol? What, what's in the way of the relationship that God wants to have with us? See, we said we called together to be the people of God. And that means in some sense being a Christian is losing our identity in Christ and then becoming part of the people of God, the church, the called out ones. That means that some of our identity is lost in each other. And this idea, and people, you know, people disparage the West. It's not just the West. It's not just America. It's a profoundly human thing. The more material wealth a country has, probably the more, more evident it becomes. But this idea of rugged individualism, it's all about me. I'm going to get mine. Me, me, me. That's anti-Christian. That is thoroughly unchristian. We are called to be the people of God. And when we are unaware of the relational priority God demonstrates, we lose out. You know, you can read all kinds of articles and the biggest, you know, you ask people what the biggest problem they're facing is and it's loneliness. People are lonely. You know, and, and people will make the, you know, argument or the observation, we're so connected, we're more connected than we've ever been, and I preached a whole series about that. We're maybe more connected than we've ever been, but we're more disconnected from God and one another than we've ever been. We don't even know what connection is. 
because everybody's running around trying to build their own kingdom, competing with other people, trying to build their own kingdom. And to this world, Jesus comes and says, my kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. Die to live. Serve to be great. Give to receive. It's an invitation to an entirely different way of life, but that's what it is. And so we've, we've gone through this journey together, and we've talked about, we know it's not legalism. We talked about Paul being the best example of somebody who goes, I keep doing the dumb stuff. I don't want to do the stuff I want to do. I don't do. I don't know what's wrong with me. And a lot of us feel like that. I mean, that's so human. But what does Paul do? Because some of us go, so I'm not even going to try. I can't do it. I keep doing the wrong thing. I'm just, what does Paul says? Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. Because he's the source. So I don't care what your yesterday looked like. I don't even care what your this morning looked like. I pray that this message penetrates all of our hearts. Because we talk about going deeper, and this is what it looks like. Going deeper is uncomfortable. But it's beautiful. It's beautiful. If our goals are not aligned with God's goals, we're not following Jesus. We're serving self. God's calling is most often not what we expect, but it is also always better. Always. Not easier. Not more comfortable. Not more advantageous to our goals, but better. Overwhelmingly better. That's what Jesus invites us into. And that is what, like the rich young ruler, we often walk away from sad because we think the treasure we have is more valuable, but it never fulfills. God exists in relationship. And he created us for relationship. In Hebrew, you see again, God chooses to express himself in relation to how he interacts with his people. And so we're invited to participate, right? We receive that, believe and have life. That means our very identity must be submitted to Christ and his bride, the church, the redeemed, the people of God. And so the story of the rich young ruler is really a story about any one of us who choose our own life goals over following Jesus. And make no mistake, we have a choice to make. Because despite what you've heard and despite what you've read, the American dream is thoroughly anti-Christian. That doesn't mean success is anti-Christian. That doesn't mean, well, that means the pursuit of your own comfort and success above all else is thoroughly anti-Christian. I've heard it said like this. We're supposed to love people and use things, and instead we use people and love things. And it doesn't fulfill us. See, that's the thing. It'd be different if it worked. But what made the rich young ruler sad is that he knew it didn't work. It wasn't going to work. It was never going to work. And we know that apart from Christ, Augustine, I mean, we've, we, one of my favorite quotes, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. And so you're here, and maybe you can't quantify it. Maybe you haven't explicitly stated it, but you are restless, and you are longing, and you continue to search, and you'll continue to be restless, and you'll continue to long until you rest in him, until you respond to Jesus' invitation. At least the rich young ruler was honest with himself. We lie to ourselves. 
And see, I know this, is, this has been a tough series, and this is going to be a really tough message. But I've said before, I love you so much that I'd rather you not like me for telling you the truth than love me for a lie. It's relatively easy to, to get a crowd. It really is. You preach, you know, things that tickle people's ears and make them walk away and feel good. And listen, the gospel is the greatest news in the world there is. It should encourage us. But the bad news first is that we're lost and we're, we're dying in sin and we're, and we're a slave to selfishness and Jesus come, came that we would be free. And Paul has to say, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. The very thing you're looking for, that's why he came. But why does he have to say, stand firm therefore and don't be subject again to a yoke of slavery. In other words, operate in your freedom. Don't go back to the things that enslaved you. So it is the greatest news in the world. But we got to recognize the truth of needing Jesus. When John says, believe and have life, he says, I want you to come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Don't overlook that. He says, Jesus is the promised one of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the one God promised to come to take away our sin so our relationship can be restored with God. If he's not that, he's nothing. And that is everything. Believe, have life. We preach the gospel, the one true gospel that some may come to believe and that one's coming to believe. Together in Christ we have life. We should be thrilled to be called, church, and we have work to do. We have work to do. Ephesians 2.10. For we are God's handiwork. We are the apple of his eye. We are the, 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 the end result of his creation. We're the pinnacle of his creation. He loves us with a love we can't fathom. But we are, we are God's handiwork. And then it says this. And I was telling somebody the other day, I was talking to Pastor Sam, and I said, I know this message has been biblical because I think it's upset every theological persuasion and every position that people have held. What do I mean? What I mean that too often, and history and tradition, that's helpful. That's very helpful. But we should use Scripture to help us interpret history and tradition. We should not use history and tradition to help us interpret Scripture. And so you hear all kinds of things, and sometimes, I, I remember Francis Chan once said this, I wonder how we'd read the Bible if people didn't tell us how to read it. I wonder what it would mean if somebody didn't tell us this is what it means. Now, I'm not saying you don't, you know, rely on commentary and, and all that. That's not what I'm saying. But let Scripture interpret Scripture. Let the Spirit interpret Scripture. Be open to what it says, not what you want it to say. We are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus. And then it says to do good works. We're created to do good works. I don't care what your theological persuasion told you. And here's the thing, and I'll, and I'll just do a little, little bonus, okay? If you understand anything about church history, you got to understand that when something happens in reaction to something else, you always have to have that in context, right? So in other words, the reformers came, and they didn't like how it was, it was you know, works was so wrapped up in the process, and they said, faith alone, faith alone, faith alone. 
True, 100% true. We would affirm that, absolutely. Faith, you're saved by faith alone, right? But faith that saves is never alone. So in an an attempt to make it all about faith, faith is the core, is that belief that have life. But belief means turn and repent. It doesn't just mean think a certain way. A.W. Tozer said, the devil is a better theologian than any of us and is a devil still. Even the demons believe in Jesus. It is about what we believe. It's important to understand the truth of what God's word says, the truth and the character of God. We have to know that. But we don't leave it there. It says we are created to do good works in Christ Jesus. That means not apart from Christ Jesus, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We don't do good works to get saved. We do good works as the result of being saved. But make no mistake, faith and works are part of the life of a Christian, or you're just observing. You're just adding commentary. You're just on the sidelines. And again, go back and listen to what we've said This is not legalism. This is not workspace salvation. This is not perfectly getting it right. It's also not walking away. It's also not going, ah, you know, I can't, you know, this, this. See, revival begins with me, and it begins with you. When we want revival, we should should recognize revival means something was dead, and now it's brought back to life. And we, we said this before, but revival, everybody wants revival. And we said, I want revival. And what we really mean is we want everybody else to change. Oh, this world needs revival. The politics, the country, the, my wife, everybody needs revival. I want to see my neighbors need revival. Everyone needs revival. What about you? No, I'm good. I'm all right. I'm just the guy praying for revival. It's funny, but it's not, right? You know when revival happens? When I love Jesus more than my sin. The gospel's clear. It's a life for a life. Jesus gave up his life, and in return, he says, give me all life back. And you'll lose nothing. You'll gain everything. Why don't we believe that? What if we did believe that? What would it look like? It's not what we do that ultimately matters, but what a sovereign God chooses to do through us. So we said God wants obedience, but only if he has our hearts. And so when when defining the culture here, and we haven't said it in a little while, but we've said a lot, that we want to be a place where people feel loved enough to stay and challenged enough to grow. Loved enough to stay and challenged enough to grow. And growth is never comfortable. And if you're comfortable, you're not growing. So choose. One is inherently above and beyond way better than the other. Not easier, but better, more beautiful, more fulfilling. No question. I say that without reservation. You'll know it experientially. You'll know it in every way, in the fiber of your being. You'll know. Why? Because God created us. He created us for a purpose. And that purpose finds its basis, its grounding in relationship with him. And everything we do is, is, is an overflow of that. I'm going to 
probably preach on this, this theme entirely separately, but I just want to point out that you know when you hear about the law and the commandments, you know that the root of the law and commandments is always the love of God? Do you know that the purpose for every one of those things he says is rooted in love? And that's why Jesus says, that's why Jesus distills everything. He says, all the law and the commandments, everything the prophets have said, you know what, it hangs on two things, love God and love people. I mean, this isn't complicated. It'll take a lifetime to live out. But we have the Spirit of God, the Word of God, the power of God, the presence of God. We are the people of God. We do it together. But we got to do it. We got to do it. And so Romans 12, 2. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of the world. See, it's an interesting thing about patterns or grooves. or You, you may try to kind of take off the path, but it's almost like it reminds you if you drill a hole and that's a little off and you've got to drill another one slightly off, no matter how much you try, it goes back into that, right? It goes back into what's known, what's comfortable, what we're used to. And so it's hard. We've got to be brave to take a path, you know, that we don't know. There's a way that leads to life, Right? The, sh- the narrow and the, and the wide road. Jesus talks a lot about it. Whose kingdom are you building? Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. It's interesting that we live in a time where people will disparage the Christian worldview based on some ethical consideration. I mean, you hear it all the time. This is right and that's wrong. This week or this month or this year, whatever it is. And I always go, but why? But why is that right and that wrong? Well, because it just is. No, nope, got to do better. Well, I don't, I don't really know. I mean, it just... It's interesting to make ethical claims about why something is right or wrong arbitrarily without any objective standard for those ethical claims. So when people say, oh, you know, Christians are hypocrites, and well, why is hypocrisy bad? We know it is. I mean, we know deep down inside it is because we have a conscience because we're created in God's image Every human being, do not conform any longer to the pattern of the world. Don't just think the way you've been told to think. We shouldn't, school shouldn't teach people what to think. They should teach them how to think. We are free. We should be free to process any information, good, bad, whatever, full access, either way. But we have, to, we have to stop and ask ourselves, why do I hold this view? Do not conform to the pattern of the world, which is ever-changing and never-fulfilling. But, as an alternative, be transformed. The word's metanoia. It's, it's an entirely different thing. It's that new creation, right? It's you were a caterpillar and now you're a butterfly. Be transformed entirely by the renewing of your mind. By allowing your mind to be made new. How does that happen? The word of God, the spirit of God, the people of God. And it says then, and might I add, and only then, will you be able to test and approve what God's will is. In other words, people say, well, what's God's will for my life? Well, it's that you submit and surrender yourself to him so he can show you. It's that you 
live different than the world lives. That you stand for Christ. And it says, and then when you do that, you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. And then it says his good and pleasing and perfect will. His will is good and his will is perfect and his will is pleasing. In other words, no matter what you come up with and no matter what I come up with, it doesn't compare to what he comes up with for us. But we got the banana. We want the banana. It's a good banana. Don't be like you were before. You know, I have a friend, and I've said this before, but he says, you know, some people are Christians for 50 years, some people are Christians for a year, 50 times over. Saddest thing in the world, really. Sermon after sermon, week after week, decade after decade, nothing changes. Oh, I've always been like that. It's the dumbest thing I've ever heard anybody say ever. My father was like that, my grip, what? What does that even mean? Talents, treasures, and time. That's all we got. What are you leveraging your life for? The alternative is to come here week after week, year after year, and decade after decade, and be stubborn like the rich young ruler. And I said before, and this was the Holy Spirit, because I've thought about this over and over again. When I said your past is not going to keep you away from the will of God in your life. Your past isn't going to do it. It's only your pride. If you walk out of here the same way you walked in, it's not because you're past. It's because you're pride. It's because you're stubbornness. It's because you're holding on to the banana. And God's saying, if you just let it go, you'll have life and you'll have freedom and you'll have everything you long for. Don't refuse to change the one thing God's trying to change in you. Because you have two ways to live. Build his kingdom or build yours. We're all in a process, right? We're all in a process. Believing and trusting is the beginning, right? And we must do both. And we said believing involves accepting facts, but it doesn't end at accepting facts. It's to trust, to depend on, to love, to live for. Sanctification, becoming more like Jesus means change. And refusal to change removes yourself from service. The one thing God gives us, the one thing he wants back is our will. I am grateful that I have known such a brokenness and such a hopelessness and such a weariness. And I'm grateful that Jesus met me there and that I will never ever be the same again because of the overwhelming love of God expressed through the people of God when it would have been easier to say, I don't know how to help this guy. But instead, the church of Jesus Christ, the real church, the visible church, loved me back to life. I had somebody just come after me after the first service with tears in her eyes. And she said, I've known so many people that have lost their lives to overdose. And she said, I am so thankful that God preserved your life for such a time as this. 
And you can say, well, Pastor Brian, you know, that's so powerful what God's done in your life. And you know what's powerful? What he's done in your life. What he wants to do in your life. I love when David says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Why? You taste and see. I can't taste and see for you. But that's the invitation. Taste and see for yourself. Jesus said to Thomas, the daughter, touch my side. I will prove to you who I am. Walk with me. Give me your life. Give your life to Jesus. The enemy will take you back anytime. Anytime. The world will judge me one day, and they'll judge you. And they'll say this, or they'll say that. All I want. You'll say, boy, that guy, he's, you know, he said some dumb things, did some dumb things, he, whatever. I just want people to say, he really loved Jesus. That guy, for all his flaws and all his failures, he really loved Jesus. I mean, that's all anybody, that's all we should want anybody to say, right? See, so many times we go from being the tax collector to the Pharisee. We go from being the person who is so desperate and so empty and so beat up to somehow prideful because we think we have the answers. Or I don't want to forget that left to myself, I am dreadful. I am a wretch, but he loves me. And he loves you. You know, John Newton lived to be 82 years old. Continued to preach through 80 years of his life. His last year and a half, his health was failing. And he was unable. But for all of his life, he preached. He was never ceased to be amazed by God's grace. And he told his friends, you know, my, my memory is nearly gone. But there's two things I remember so clearly. That I am a great sinner. And that Jesus is a great Savior. See, God doesn't look out and go, all right, I'm going to need some talent and ability here. Who's got resources? Who's... I mean, he doesn't need you. You get to participate. We get to be part of his plan. He doesn't need us. You know who he looks for? He looks for people who go, here I am, Lord, use me. And instead we're like, oh, you know, once I get this together, once I, once I do this, you know, I got some things in my life I got to work out and then I'm going to start following Jesus. That's like saying, I got to exercise and get in shape and then I'll go to the gym. So you don't get your stuff together and then start following Jesus. You follow Jesus and he helps you get your stuff together. Matthew was a tax collector. Paul murdered believers. Peter was a fisherman who lacked self-control. It is evident that God can and will work through all kinds of people, and this should give us hope. Not about how special and important we are, but how special and important he is. And it should let us know that he can use anyone to accomplish his purposes. Don't make excuses. Don't run. 
I don't want you to say, oh, this was a good message, or this, you know, moved me this way, or I had this feeling. I don't, I don't care. God doesn't care about that. I want the word of God to penetrate your heart. I want him to do whatever he needs to do in your life to take you to a place of surrender so you'll know the beauty of giving yourself fully to him. I talked to somebody a couple times this week, different families. Pray for this person, pray for that person, pray for this situation. And I've said it a million times, I'll say, just so we're clear. My prayer is not that the court case goes a certain way. My prayer is not that everything works out the way your loved one wants it to. My prayer is that God will do whatever it takes to bring this person to the end of themselves. I'm only praying that their life is preserved. Other than that, everything's on the table. Do whatever you need to do, Lord, to bring us to that place of surrender. Don't be like the rich young ruler and allow your stubbornness and idolatry to cause you to walk away from an encounter with Jesus and a life filled with the sadness that comes from idle pursuits. See, our job is just to proclaim. Proclaim the truth of who God is and allow that truth to penetrate and permeate. We can't make converts. We don't have the power to make converts. We're called to make disciples with converts. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, of discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No matter how long you've studied psychology or theology, no matter how bright you are, no matter how clever, no matter how articulate, you can't do that, and I can't do that, but the word of God and the spirit of God does that. 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is folly. It's foolishness. It doesn't make rational sense to those who are perishing. But to us being saved, it is the power of God. So when people say, ah, oh, you know, you, I like you, you know, but, you know, I think you overdo it with the Jesus thing. You didn't think I overdid it with the drugs and alcohol thing, but that's another story. And I'll always say, but you weren't there when he saved me. You don't know what he rescued me from, and you don't know what he rescued me to. And if you only knew, and you only experienced what he has for you, you would never, ever walk away from him. When, Peter says, when Jesus says to Peter, who do you say that I am? Some people say this, some people say that. Who do you say? Because that's really the question when you leave here. That's really the question every one of us has to answer is, who do you say that I am? Peter said, you are the Messiah, you're the son of the living God. Where else are we going to go? Life can get rough. We can want to give up. And we can run, run to these things that will maybe give us a temporary respite. And then when they fade, things will be worse and we'll still be where we are. We can run into the arms of the one who says, come to me and I will give you rest for your soul. See, we need forgiveness and like little children, we pout and we rebel and we seek after our little toys and our little idols and refuse to acknowledge the obvious truth. 
and we keep ourselves sufficiently distracted from the fundamental reality of our existence until something happens. Maybe we're dying. Here's a little, little note for you, a little, little point of reference. We're all dying. We're all dying. Everything you give up, every time you give up your, your time, it's the only thing you'll never get back. You can gain and lose wealth. You can gain and lose health. You can gain and lose relationships. But what you exchange your time for, it's gone forever. It's the most valuable thing you have. Don't waste your life. We're called to be the church, not just to come to church, right? And the call of God is a great privilege. This isn't a place where we come to get our needs met. It's a, come, it's a place where we come, and, and I always say, you, we're either ministering to you or with you, and they're not mutually exclusive. But we are called to minister together to one another. We're called to be recipients of ministry, right? Paul says we were reconciled to God, and we're what? Given the ministry of reconciliation. That we're now called to be ambassadors. We hear sermons on serving or giving, pressing into Jesus, Maybe, maybe we move toward one single act. We show up, we consume something for our spiritual diet, and then we ignore it. We don't apply it. You know, it's interesting when somebody says, you know, my wife used to say, you know, do you want to lose weight? I'd be like, well, not really. I mean, I used to say yes, and now I'm like, in theory, I do, but not really. I mean, at least I got to the point, I'm honest, because I used to be like, well, yes, I do. And she's like, well, these are the things you have to do. I'll be like, I don't want to do those things. Well, you don't really want to lose weight. And sometimes like, and forget about, I don't, I don't care what other people have told you, what you've heard, whatever. It's just what the Bible says. So I care what the Bible says. So I feel like Jesus is going, do you want to follow me? Like, well, in theory, and this is what it takes. Yeah, I don't want to do those things. But then somehow we lie to ourselves and we tell everyone we're a follower of Jesus. I've heard people say that that never followed Jesus a day in their life. The cares of the world come in and they rob us, rob us of our spiritual lives. We neglect our time with the Lord. We neglect reading his word. Famous quote. It says, people will come to love their oppression, to adore, to adore the technologies that undo their capacities to think. Aldous Huxley said that. People will come to love their oppression, to adore the technologies that undo their capacities to think. Why? Because when we're distracted, we don't ponder our existence. We don't think of the big things. We just stay distracted until crisis comes or, or something comes that causes us to go, wait a minute, I should really think about what life is. And then usually that fades and we go right back to the, the ruts, the pattern of the world, what we're comfortable with. We don't know how to be still. We don't know how to reflect. We don't know how to repent. We don't know how to serve without applause. Be faithful when times are tough. Look around you. There are people in this room, I love that every week I meet somebody new. There are people in this room who are broken and hurting. Marriage is falling apart. Addiction financial trouble, health issues in this room. And we have an opportunity to love people back to life with the love of Jesus, to minister, to be aware 
of needs other than our own. We are so wrapped up in our own stuff. What standard will Jesus use to determine those who are truly saved? Forget about what you think. Forget about what you've been taught. Let's just, let's just read Scripture. Let's see what Jesus says. Matthew 25, verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them one from another as the, separ- as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. All nations... There's nobody that's not part of this. You don't get to go, I don't want to play this game. C.S. Lewis says, a man standing on the train tracks with a train coming has to make a decision, and he cannot not make a decision, and his indecision is still a decision because the train's still coming. I don't want to decide. Get off the tracks and stand. I don't want to decide. Okay. Then you've decided. Matthew 25. Verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then don't miss this. And then it says in verse 37, then the righteous will answer him and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? In other words, we weren't even necessarily conscious that we were doing those things for you. We were just obedient. It just came natural because of our love. See, people say all the time, you hear around Christmas time, there was no room for him in the inn, and we all like to go, I would have made room. If I was there, I would have made room for Jesus. Yeah, how much room are you making for him right now in your life? How much room am I making for him right now in my life? And, and, and they were so shocked by the fact that I didn't, we, would, we were doing this for you, Jesus? We, not even realizing. It, it, was just, it was just a default. It was just what they did. Verse 40, the king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that what you did to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it for me. I want to say it again because this is the critical point. It's the key to the teaching. Truly I say to you, the extent at which you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. The extent you loved those who most needed love, the extent you met the needs of the people who were most needy, not the people who fit your political or ideological or whatever else, but those who are in need, that's what determines it. 
And I'm not saying you don't use discernment and wisdom and we got to be thoughtful on how we help people so we're actually helping them. Let's continue. A paraphrasing is, whenever you did one of these things to somebody overlooked or ignored or marginalized, you did it for me, Jesus said. I'm the one you did that for. And make this point even clearer, because they didn't have bold and italics. What they had was repetition. And so Jesus is going to make this point even clearer, and he's going to move from the positive, whatever you did do, to the negative, whatever you did not do. In other words, you can't be passive. You can't be a bystander. You either do or you don't do. He clarifies, you might not like this. You might not want to hear this. You might, you might think, this isn't very nice for Jesus to say. I don't like this church anymore. I'm going to find a church that doesn't say this kind of stuff. But remember, Jesus gave his life for you. And that buys what I like to call relational capital. That means that if I have relational capital with somebody, if I've proven to somebody that I love them and that my motives are to help them and that they can trust me, I've earned the right to speak into their life in ways that sometimes people can't. Jesus gave his life on the cross for you and I. That's all the relational capital he needs. And he's God, so he's got that going for him too. He gave his life for you. He loves you. And here's the thing. I'm like a professor giving you the answers before the test. We have the answers beforehand. You ready? It starts rough. This is, this is not. Verse 41. Then he will say also to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. You don't hear that preached a lot. It's Jesus' words. It's Jesus' words. Now, what we have to clearly understand is that Jesus isn't saying that by doing these things you are saved. Jesus is saying you did those things or didn't do those, do those things because you were saved. Jesus is saying if you love God, you can't help but love people. If, if you're looking at this and saying, how do I do, how do I do this, what is my, your main thing is to love God. Your main thing is to surrender and put yourself, trust in Christ. That's the beginning. And when you love God, he helps you to love people. And if you love people, your heart has to break for what God's heart breaks for. And his heart breaks for the least of these, the marginalized, the, over, the outcasts, the people who nobody helps. Why? Because there's nothing in it for helping them. That's why. I mean, let's face it. We all help the people that we think, you know, someday I'm going to call in a favor with that guy. But we look and people can't do anything for us. And Jesus is going, look, if, if you have a heart after God's own heart, then it's going to break when you see people in distress. I heard it said once, I want to ask God why he doesn't do something about poverty and famine and homelessness, but I'm afraid he might ask me the same thing. Jesus is not saying those people are saved because of what they did. He's saying they did what they did because they were saved. They have a heart for the vulnerable. I want to read a statement that C.S. Lewis made about hell. And he said this, 
There is no doctrine which, with which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this, if it lay in my power. It has the full support of Scripture, especially in Christ's own words in the text we just read. It has always been held by Christendom, and it has the support of reason. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. To those who knock, the door is opened. So we go back to our scripture, and here's the negative, verse 42. I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. This is Jesus talking to me and talking to you. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me, and I was naked, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. They themselves would also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison? When did we not take care of you, Jesus? And he will answer them and say, truly I say to you, that which you did not do for the least of these you did not do for me. Go away into eternal punishment and the righteous to eternal life. I don't like this any more than you do. But it's Jesus' words. See, we hear a lot about love and mercy and forgiveness, and those, those things are there. We don't like justice. We could, we could talk for a while, but for God to be perfect and holy, he has to be just. He has to be fair. And so we say, well, you know, I want mercy. And if your kid was hit by a drunk driver, and the driver went before the judge, and the judge says, you know, I'm a good judge. I love everybody. I want to be merciful. You can just go. Would you say that was a good judge? No, that would be a horrible judge. Justice. Jesus came to pay the penalty that was due. It was a real penalty. You owe it, and I owe it. It was for our sin. The good news is the good news, which is Jesus paid it, only if we recognize the bad news, which is it needs to be paid. And I don't care if that doesn't get preached or that's not, that's not very encouraging. It it's the best news in the world. It's the most encouraging news in the world. But not if you sit and you're on the train tracks and the train's coming like, I don't want to think about this. I don't want to, da, da, da. Let's look again to Lewis for some help. In the long run, the answer to those who object to hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sin? And at all costs to give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help. Oh, but he's done so. On Calvary. To just forgive them, they will not be forgiven. That is not justice. To leave them alone, alas, I am afraid that is what he does. Leaves them alone in the sin that they love. We're going to have an opportunity, and I'm going to ask uh, Pastor Willie to come up, the worship team, to have communion together. And communion is both a recognition and a remembrance of what Christ has done, and it's also a proclamation that he's coming again, that the story hasn't ended, that God's unfolding plan to be our God and to, for us to be his people continues.
It's made possible in Jesus Christ. The kingdom now. So we can live for self or we can live for Jesus. But don't deceive yourselves into a superficial faith that leaves you in bondage. And don't leave here the same way you walked in. Jesus came to set you and I free from death and sin and the worship of self. Free not just from our past, but to a future. To kingdom-centered living. The call is different than we think. But the call is the road on which discipleship takes place. We do it together, church. But we can't not do it. We serve together. We leverage our time and talents and treasures together for the one to whom everything pales in comparison. To Jesus, who said this, what good is it if you gain the whole world, everything the world has to offer, but you forfeit your soul? What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Do you believe? Do you trust? Will you follow? Why don't you stand, church, as we close together? Pastor Willie.